Well, good morning, Melanie Park Church. Uh, look forward to seeing you next week. And uh, until that time, this morning we have a really important passage, but also one that's really challenging. There are others much smarter than me who have varying opinions on this text, but I have a pretty simple mind, so I plan to take you through what I think is the most uh, simple and straightforward understanding of this passage. But regardless of one's opinion, there are some universal truths that have to be maintained regardless of where you land. First, we need to remember that Paul is writing to Christians that are young in their faith. At best, these people have known the Lord and walked with Him for two to three years. And many of them are Gentiles, which means they don't have a long tradition of faith from which to draw from. In fact, everything they know is what they've learned from Paul and Timothy during that short time that they spent together. So any explanation that is complicated or filled with nuances is probably not right. The second thing we need to keep in mind is that Paul is writing to encourage and comfort the Thessalonian church. They are enduring a severe persecution, and as we'll learn this morning, they have now been influenced by false teachers. So their faith has been disturbed. That means the goal of Paul's letter is to help bring them peace. So any explanation that doesn't bring comfort to Christians probably isn't true. It shouldn't be confusing. It must be comforting. And it needs to be consistent. I think it's best to look at 1st and 2nd Thessalonians as really one single letter. I think we see that Paul writes in 1st Thessalonians in many ways is echoed then in 2nd Thessalonians. They were written just a few months apart from one another. And even though he addresses a number of issues, there's really one primary theme that is woven into both letters, and it is revolving around the promised return of Jesus Christ. So any explanation that doesn't line up with Paul's previous letter probably isn't true. It shouldn't be confusing. It must be comforting, and it needs to be consistent. That's the path that we'll take as we look at this passage together. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open up your word this morning, we really do want to have a clear understanding of the message you intended to bring comfort to Christians. Not just those in the Thessalonian church, but those even in our church this morning and churches around the world. So I pray that what we learn wouldn't be confusing, that it would be very comforting, and it would be very consistent with your word uh, throughout your Bible, Lord. We want to be able to be faithful to what you've said. So as we have this heart in mind, would you guide and lead us through our time? And we pray this in your name. Amen. Before we look at our passage this morning, let's kind of review where Paul has taken us up to this point. Early in his first letter, Paul encourages the Thessalonian church, who he describes this way. He says, who have turned from idols and served the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So right from the beginning, Paul includes his main topic that he will discuss all throughout 
1 Thessalonians. In fact, in every chapter that follows, he brings up this same topic. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of, of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? And then again in chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish us or establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So each chapter he's talked about this coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when he enters into chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he begins to unpack in detail what he has been alluding to up to this point. And he does so by addressing a specific question asked of him by the Thessalonian church. They are worried about those who have died. And they're worried because many of them have been martyred for their faith. So their belief, their faith was sincere. And they're concerned that perhaps they might miss out on the promise of the Lord's return. Paul responds by saying, They won't miss out. In fact, they will be first in line. Listen to how he describes that in chapter 4, verse 14, when he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, Paul is describing the imminent return of Jesus Christ when he comes to gather the church, both living and dead. They wonder, will the dead be included? And and he says, yes, they will be first in line when the Lord comes and gathers both the dead and alive in Christ to be with him for eternity. So first, Paul addresses the concern about those who are dead in Christ, and then he speaks to those who remain alive in Christ, both of whom, again, will be gathered together when Christ returns. So then in chapter 5, Paul talks about the day of the Lord. He's talking about a separate event here, and unlike the rapture, this day will be preceded with observable signs, which is why Paul writes to The Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 4, and says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day of the Lord should overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night or of darkness, so let us not sleep as others do. But let us be alert and sober. We need to be alert and sober because God has literally not left us in the dark on this one. Instead, he has told us what to expect. Paul closes that section with what I believe to be some of the best news in all of the Bible when he says in verse 9 of that same chapter 5, For God has not destined us 
for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Here's the key. That whether awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And once again, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Those who have died in Christ will not be forgotten. Those who remain alive in Christ are not destined for wrath. We are destined for salvation. And we will not endure the judgment of the day of the Lord. First comes the rapture, and then comes the wrath. That's what Paul's first letter has explained to us. And then just a few months have passed before they receive this second letter. Because apparently during this time, there have been some very disruptive events that have taken place within the Thessalonian church. I want us to look at that together. If you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let's begin reading together in verse 1. Where Paul now writes and says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him. That's the rapture. That's what brings comfort to them. That you may not be quickly shaken, and from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Once again, I want you to notice the very clear purpose of Paul's letter. He wants to provide clarification that helps bring comfort to the Thessalonian church. Their peace has been disrupted by some bad information. Apparently, there are some false teachers who have now infiltrated the Thessalonian church. They were, compl- they were co- uh, claiming to have received a, a special revelation from the Lord that did not line up with Paul's original teaching, which is why he's writing this letter. And to make matters worse, they actually forged the letter as if it had come from Paul. Now, You'll remember from 1 Thessalonians, Paul told them to examine everything carefully. He said to cling to what is good and abstain from what is evil. Well, this is evil because it does not line up with God's word. So Paul goes back to his original letter when he says, now in regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. And then he gives them an additional clarification about the day of the Lord. And he does so with more details than his first letter. And remember, this is something that he's already spoken to. And the comfort he gave was that Christians will not endure the day of God's wrath. But apparently, someone has come along and said, that's not true maybe even convincing them that they were experiencing God's wrath right now. And if that was news that you had heard, that would be pretty disturbing to you, would it not? Well, let's see how he continues in verse 3. He says, "Let Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy has come first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, 
the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Remember, the rapture comes without warning. It's the imminent return of Christ. But there will be observable signs preceding the promised day of the Lord. So here's where Paul explains the details that God has revealed in his word. He says, let no one deceive you. The apostasy must come first. Now, some translations describe it as a rebellion or a falling away, but most scholars agree these are professing Christians who literally walk away from their faith. But since they walk away from their faith, they were really never truly believers to begin with. And we can really see how this could happen even in our own part of the world, even in our own country. In fact, most polls suggest that 75% of people in the United States claim to be Christian. Think about that. 75%. Is that right? And yet, only 41% of them actually attend church and far less on a regular basis. I believe we see all kinds of apostasy happening even in our little corner of the world. Paul gives a very clear picture of what this will look like in these days. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with, to their own desires. In other words, people who say what they want them to say and will turn away from their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. That's the apostasy. Paul says this is the first indication that the day of the Lord is drawing near. And to a certain degree, I think we see that kind of apostasy all throughout our world today. But the other event that must occur before the day of the Lord involves the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Some translations say the man of sin. But this, too, is another detail where there's really not a lot of debate. And the reason there's not a lot of debate is because you see this in other places in Scripture. For example, Daniel prophesies of this very same event that Paul is referring to when he says in Daniel 9.27, he describes it this way, when he, talking about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, he will make a firm covenant with, a, with many for on, on one, in one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on a wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is destroyed decreed, that is the destruction, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he's going to do some terrible things, but that will come to an end when he is destroyed. He talks about it similarly uh, with more detail in chapter 11, verse 36. You don't have this one. There's not one that's going to come up on the screen because I just thought about it this morning. But listen to what it says in verse 36. It says, then the king, again, talking about the Antichrist, will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things. 
about the God of gods, the one true God. And he will prosper until indignation is finished. For that which is decreed, that, that is his destruction, will be done. So Daniel speaks of this very clearly. And if you go into Revelation chapter 13, you will see John describe even more detail. In that context, he calls him the beast. But what we need to understand is that Daniel and Paul in Thessalonians and John in Revelation are all talking about the same person. It's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. That's who that is. So as we follow the timetable, we've moved from the general population where we will see apostasy happening to a very specific person known as the Antichrist. And if you look back throughout history, there's probably several people that you would look at and say, gosh, that kind of sounds or looks like the Antichrist. Terry and Grant have been studying many of the ancient rulers, and one of the ones that stands out to me is a man by the name of Antiochus, Epiphanes. He was the king of Syria, and in 167 BC, he came and captured Jerusalem. And when he got there, this is what he did. He took a pig, which was, as you know, unclean to the Jews. He took that pig and sacrificed it on the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. And he sacrificed it to the God of Zeus. Sounds a lot like what Paul's describing here. But for a more modern example, what about Hitler? He was a man of lawlessness, a man of very, very bad sin. In fact, if you were Jewish, could you imagine anyone more evil than someone who is willing to ruthlessly kill six million people with gas chambers and firing squads? But what we need to understand that all of these examples, and there are many more, are just a type or a foreshadowing of the one to come. Because this man of sin, this Antichrist, will move into a position of worldwide power and influence to the point that he claims to be God. And that's God with a capital G. Not one of many gods, not, not like the Romans who claim to be a God. This is the God. That's why he's called the Antichrist, because he takes the true claims of Jesus Christ and he wrongly applies them to himself. And apparently, these are details that Paul has already walked through with the Thessalonians because he says there in verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? I think this is the providence of God. Here, he was giving them the basics of what it means to be a Christian as they were growing in their faith, but he told them some important things about the coming day of the Lord because I think the Lord prompted Paul to speak these words as a comfort to them because he knew the persecution that they would endure. And everything around them is telling them that they are in the midst of God's judgment, but it's not true. Look at how he continues in Chapter 2, verse 6. It says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Talking about the one who restrains being taken out of the way. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearance of his coming. We saw that in Daniel's prophecy. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. See, when we look at our passage, most of the scholars agree with what the apostasy is. They are in agreement with the man of sin, but there's a lot of opinion on this, the identity of the one who restrains. So much so, is that, so much so that it wouldn't be good for anyone to be dogmatic about their opinion. All we know is that this is something the Thessalonians knew because Paul had discussed it with them. But it is significant because this particular event is what unleashes the Antichrist. Because up to this point, the one who restrains has been active in the world. I think we can say even today. We see apostasy, we see lawlessness, but it's been held in check. But the one who restrains, when he's removed, the man of sin will then be revealed for all to see. And that's literally when all hell breaks loose. The reason that's true is because the Antichrist is personally empowered by Satan. He will carry out deception. We see the signs and uh, false wonders And all who willfully reject the truth will fall prey to his deception. Those, as Paul says, who take pleasure in wickedness will give him their allegiance. But who is the one who restrains? Well, some suggest that it's human governments. They're the ones who restrain because by definition, they are set up to enforce laws to ensure order and stability In a society. And since the Antichrist will gain worldwide power, then he will be in control of all the government. So maybe that's it. But I don't think that's true because it seems to point to a specific person. It says, the one who restrains. That's why some have actually identified this as Satan. Kind of like a skillful chess player. He's restraining, kind of controlling his moves until just the right moment. But as crafty as Satan is, He's still ruled by sin, and he doesn't know the first thing about self-restraint. So I don't think this is true either. In my simple mind, there's really only one authority that has the power to restrain evil. There's really only one authority that is, uh, is not corrupted by sin. More specifically, I believe the one who restrains is the power of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. And when God removes his spirit, evil will run its course. But please understand, even in the midst of this chaos, God is sovereignly in control. Because as we read in this passage, as we saw in Daniel, the lawless one will ultimately be destroyed. When Jesus comes in judgment, And he slays the Antichrist, as Paul describes, with the breath of his voice. It reminds me of a passage back in Isaiah 40. 
when Isaiah writes and he says about God, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. He says, scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. Jesus will bring an end to the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation. But until that day, God will use his evil deception to bring about divine judgment. Look at our passage again in verse 11. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might not believe what is false, so that they might believe what is false, in order that that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Much like we see at the cross, God will allow sinful man to accomplish a divine purpose. Because even at Calvary, Jesus took the wrath of God's judgment as a payment for our sin. What others intended for evil, God ultimately used for our ultimate good. That truth has been proclaimed through the church as the good news of the gospel. But those who reject this truth will invite God's judgment. This reminds me of a passage that Paul speaks of in his letter to the Romans. When he describes it this way, he says in chapter 1, verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, even though given the opportunity, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, with wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You see, the worst possible thing that God could ever do is to leave us to ourselves. But when we reject God's truth, that's when Satan's deluding influence leads us to destruction. That's his goal. The scripture's clear. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And that's what's happening here. And people have willfully chosen to reject the truth of God. And so he lets them have their way. And Satan leads them to destruction through his deception. Instead of accepting the judgment that he took for them on the cross, they willingly choose to receive God's judgment for their sin. But please remember, Paul is writing this letter to comfort and encourage the Thessalonian church. What he writes needs to be consistent with what he's already said. And it can't be complicated or confusing because he's writing to those who are young in their faith. So let me close with something I believe was really hard 
for these early Christians to understand. And to help illustrate this, I want us to go back to the time with Jesus and his disciples. As the disciples grew more aware of who Jesus was as the promised Messiah, what was their expectation of what Jesus would do? Establish his kingdom, right? In fact, all the way up until moments before the ascension of Jesus. So we've already had the death, burial, and resurrection. He's been with the disciples for another 40 days, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And just moments before the ascension into heaven, the disciples turn to Jesus and they ask this question. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, is this the time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? You see, that's a very good question. Because that's what the Old Testament said he would do. And Jesus never corrected them. He never said, no, actually you've got it all wrong or, or, that, or that's not going to happen. That's not what he said. What he actually said in verse 7 was, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs the Father has fixed by his own authority. What the disciples did not understand was that there were two separate appearances of the Messiah. The first is when he comes as the suffering servant and willingly lays down his life as a payment for our sin. The second is when he comes in judgment to establish his righteous rule on earth. See, I believe something very similar is happening, happening with the Thessalonian church. But Paul is trying to distinguish for them what the disciples had to learn as well, that there are actually two different appearances of Jesus. Jesus appearing when he gathers the church, the rapture, both de dead and alive in Christ, to be together with him for all eternity. And then secondly, when Jesus comes in judgment to establish his rule. And in between these two events, we have the seven years of tribulation when the Antichrist will wreak havoc in what is known as the day of the Lord. When God pours out his wrath on a sinful and rebellious world. See, the Thessalonians are disturbed because they've been told that the day of the Lord has already come. But Paul is trying to help them understand. He's comforted them, just like he did in chapter 5, verse 9, that they are not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So if you hear nothing else, listen to this, because it is the key. If we believe that Jesus took God's wrath for our sin on the cross, then we can find comfort in knowing that we will not experience God's wrath for our sin in this world. Okay, that's the key. Don't miss that. If we believe that Jesus took God's wrath for our sin on the cross, then we can be comforted, just as Paul is trying to do with the Thessalonian church, that we will not experience God's wrath for our sin in this world. That's reserved for those who reject the truth of God in the gospel. And my hope is that this encouragement of this truth would motivate our faithful obedience to Christ. So that as Paul says earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12, that the name of the Lord, of Je that, 
excuse me, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if we belong to Christ, we've become a part of God's redemptive plan for the world. Listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. When he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and then gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When I looked at this verse uh, as I prepared for our passage, I saw something in a new light. You see, we don't simply become the righteousness of God for our own benefit. We actually are redeemed in righteousness for the benefit of others. See, the righteousness of God is actually what qualifies us to be an ambassador for Christ. Our transformed lives tell the story of God's redeeming grace. We have been saved so that we can serve in God's redemptive plan for the world. So if you've ever found yourself in a place where you're trying to find meaning and purpose in life, then look no further than this. No matter what you do, where you work, how long you live, this is why you're here. This is the purpose of God's work in your life. We were redeemed in righteousness for the benefit of others. As though, as Paul says, God were making an appeal through us on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So let me close quickly with three things that we can do in response to this passage. And they're really simple. Praise, prayer, and pursue. The first one is praise. Praise God. Praise God that we are not destined for wrath. That is incredibly good news. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whether dead or alive, you live together with Christ. And that is worthy of praise and glory and honor to the one who made that possible. Because even though we endure difficult seasons in life, and we all will, we can be assured that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So praise. Praise him for what he's done. The second thing is pray. Pray for those among whom you live and work who have not accepted this truth. Pray for opportunities to be used by God in their lives as a minister of reconciliation, as though God were making appeals through you to be reconciled through Christ. We need to understand that the church is God's plan A for bringing redemption to the world 
and there is no plan B. So pray. Pray for opportunities to be an ambassador for Christ. And then lastly, pursue. Pursue all of life with a high and holy purpose. I hope you see that through our passage this morning. You have been redeemed to put the righteousness of God on display. And let me be clear here. That's not something that you do for God. That is something that God does in you. So pursue the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And as you experience the love that flows into you through that relationship with him, then allow that to extend to those around you with whom you live and work and play. So be a people who are faithful to give praise to God for what he's done. But pray for those who have not accepted this truth and be faithful to pursue the Lord with all your heart, your mind, and strength. Because here's something we need to understand. If we're not totally thrilled and excited about who Jesus is and what he's done, we're probably not going to talk about him with others. But if we are, we probably can't not talk about him with others. So let's take some time to pray as we end this morning. Father, thank you for the truth of this passage. What a powerful truth it is. And thank you for being clear in your word about things that are yet to come. Thank you for the assurance that we can be comforted that whether we are alive or dead, we live together with Christ, that we will be gathered up with him to spend eternity in his presence. Lord, we praise you for that truth. But we also pray for those who don't know this truth or have not come to a belief in this truth, and we ask that you use our lives as ministers of reconciliation, as ambassadors for Christ, as though you, God, were making an appeal through our lives, through the transformation that has taken place through the work of your Spirit, to invite others to the goodness of who you are. And Father, we pray that we might live out that goodness on a daily basis as we pursue you with a diligent passion to know you more so that it just overflows into the lives of those around us. Father, thank you for your promises that are forever true, always consistent, and intended to bring us comfort. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you and have a great day.